Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. It is so good to be with you today. We are delighted on the pod to be joined by Dale Gentry. He is the Director of Conservation for the Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri region of the Audubon Society. He is also the founder and director of Disciple Science, which is such a passion for me that that faith and science are not only friends, they are connected in every way. He is in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I think it's a little chillier than it is for us here in Southern California. <laughs> Welcome, Dale. Oh, thank you, Courtney. It's a, a delightful to be here. Tell me about your work with the Audubon Society. How did you get connected and what do you do for them? Yeah, that's uh, great. You know, I've been, uh, I got interested in birds in college, which is decades back now and have been, so I'm an ornithologist. I study birds and bird conservation. And I've had a couple different roles in my life doing that, mostly in higher education, teaching at liberal arts universities. And uh, uh, I spent four years in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in a little independent graduate program. And a couple of years ago, I had a career switch like everybody else did during COVID. And uh, I took on this new role as director of conservation for the, the regional office for Audubon here. And we're focused on a couple of uh, a big conservation concerns. And one is the upper Mississippi River. And we do all kinds of amazing work working on um, bottomland forest uh, restoration, regeneration, and doing bird surveys down in the bottom for us, you know, most a lot of bird people are probably aware the Mississippi River is a really important migration corridor, and so we we take personal responsibility and coordinating with um, with all kinds of great partners, Fish and Wildlife, and the Army Corps, and a bunch of other groups that are involved in trying to make sure that there's outstanding habitat available for those birds when they're passing through and when they're there to breed. And then, of course, in uh, our region, we also have all kinds of really important grasslands, and all of the data sh show that grassland birds are in more trouble than any other group of birds in North America. And so we are um, working, again, with a, a, a big suite of federal and state partners to do grassland restoration and improve agricultural practices and keep tabs on those grassland birds to try and make sure that they, they have opportunities to, to thrive when they arrive here in Minnesota in the spring. Mm. I did not know that about grassland birds. Do scientists know why? Do they have a theory? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there have been a couple of really big publications come out in the past few years. In 2019, there was um, one that uh, that some people call it the three billion birds uh, study, and so it's coordinated by um, by a big group of, of bird nerds, and and they found that comparing uh, the, just the total number of birds in the entire United States, if you compare uh, 1970 with where we are now, roughly 2020, that we've lost about 3 billion birds, which is almost 30% of, of North America's birds. So this is just the entire bird community. Like there just aren't as many birds as there used to be, which is what drives Audubon. And, 
and all of our partners that want to work on birds conservation. And so grassland birds are especially troubled. And unfortunately, we can tie that most strictly to agriculture. All of the great grassland habitat in the Great Plains and the Midwest is also really great farmland. And so um, we're trying to find ways where we can kind of have our cake and eat it too, make sure that farm farmers and farms have the ability to produce the food that we need, but grassland birds and all the other grassland plants and animals also have, uh, you know, places to, to thrive. So we have actually, I mean, a bunch of cool programs, but one I'm especially excited about is called Audubon Conservation Ranching, where we certify um, ranchers that are uh, raising beef cattle with rotational grazing, which really kind of mimics the native bison, which, you know, of course are great for grasslands. The bison graze and they fertilize and they create, you know, different sort of habitat patches. And if we can, uh, you know, sort of encourage the cattle to graze in a similar manner by, by uh, rotating them really frequently, then it creates really great bird habitat. And so Audubon creates kind of a marketing opportunity for farmers that are grazing their cattle in that way. Good bird habitat, good healthy food for our communities. And so we want to lift them up as, as good examples of, of land stewards in the Midwest. Mm. So ideally, it's helping the ranchers, or at least not hurting the ranchers and the exactly. food production. Exactly. No, yeah, yeah, helping them. Yeah, we we want to encourage them to do more of it. I mean, you know, you know, if you can graze cattle in such a way that's really compatible with with native plants and native birds and healthy soils and carbon sequestration, it's really a, a win win. These are opportunities for agriculture to actually be a source of of healing and good for the land and for the birds. And so, yeah, we we want to use our our name recognition mission to certify them and, and give them a leg up and help people be, become aware of the good that they're doing through their practices. So I'm excited about that and lots of other projects that we have going on. I could, probably could go on and on, but that's a, a good starting point. As the director of conservation, I get to uh, coordinate our team of people that are involved in all these projects, we write a lot of grants and sit in a lot of meetings on Zoom all day with uh, with our state and federal agency partners and um, get to, I spend most of it on the computer, but I, I love sitting and thinking and talking about birds. So it's it's a delight. Mm. The the thing I was surprised at in starting this podcast is I'm spending so much time talking about birds. It's cutting into my time going out to see birds. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally relate. I have, you know, working for Audubon, I, I wish I was out with binoculars around my neck, you know, two days a week, but it's, it's less and less common. So weekends and, and evenings, and especially, you know, the, the month of May during, during songbird migration is, is when I really make sure I, I have time set aside for, uh, for birding, but yeah, I don't get out nearly as much as I would like to. So I can I've, relate. I have great plans for retirement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't we all? Absolutely. <laughs> So Dale, you, you are a person of faith and I know your faith influences the work that you do. So how can you be a Christian and care about conservation? Isn't it all going to burn anyway? It says so <laughs> in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great question. You know, it's funny. Um, so I spent 11 years teaching at, at a little Christian liberal arts university in, in St. Paul. And on my first day of my first class, I had this kind of engaging, you know, you know, it was environmental science. And so, you know, exactly those questions what are we doing here as Christians thinking about conservation of the environment? And is this something God wants us to care about? And, you know, I, I had students try and give me candid responses and I had a student say exactly that. I don't think we should do this because it's all going to burn. And I was like, okay, we've got some work to do. 
Where yeah. do we begin? You know, so, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, and, and this varies from, you know, in different denominations and different cultures and communities, but Christians, unfortunately, don't have a good connection with the natural world. And I think sometimes we've gotten stuck thinking a little too much about, um, not that this is a bad thing to think about, but going to heaven and, and therefore this earth doesn't matter and isn't part of God's plan and is insignificant. And we can just sort of treat it as a, as a temporary, you know, way station on our way to something more. Um, but, and, you know, I really wrestled with this myself. I have to admit in, in my college years, as I took on a career in, in biology and, and ornithology and environmental consciousness, um, I didn't have a good vision for how to fit that with my Christian faith. I, in fact, it, it caused problems for me because I just, I didn't have a mentor or, or any good resources that would help me um, put those things together and just understand, I think, what I think the whole gospel is, right? Which is that, that God started off with a plan to work with us, to take care of this place and take care of each other. And he wants to continue to do that. And that, this earth is part of God's eternal plan. And that, you know, the, the, the final vision is to reunite heaven and earth, not to take us away from this place and spend eternity as spiritual beings. So I really think that, that, you know, work and bird conservation is a a deeply Christian practice. I think um, being connected, you know, with with God through creation, through birds, through, through trees, through slime molds, whatever it is that, (laughs) that turns you on, you know, I think that's a great way to, that, you know, that can be sort of a contemplative practice and, and we need to learn to engage uh, our imaginations and, and dig into those, you know, those, those parts of scripture that, that encourage us to do that and, and figure out how to make that work in the 21st century and in the midst of a scientific um, obsessed society. Mm. I love, I love your, perspective on the ways that nature can influence us and our spirituality and the ways that our our faith can influence how we care for nature because before scripture told us it was all going to burn and like you said it's <laughs> it's not destroyed forever there's the new creation the new heavens and the new yeah. earth and i think we we don't talk about that nearly enough but before that god says you know you are stewards of the earth this is care for the earth which generally means don't treat it like a like a trash can and right. i think even if we're more short sided than that thinking about the birds that i see that i will want i want my grandkids to see someday that yeah. that even if we're only being self-centered we should still care yeah right yeah you're right I, and i think you know it, and it's hard to to say what's the best what's the most fruitful approach to to help people see this as a priority you know and cuz i we've taken a, a number of different angles and some of them more successful than others and in in the sciences, we've we've come up with this concept called ecosystem services. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but it's um, conservation biologists and environmental scientists put put dollar amounts to things like birds, right? So it's like, okay, birds are are beautiful and they have these, you know, they're they're beneficial for ecotourism and those sorts of things. But what about their role in uh, in pest management? I was just reading. Mm. Uh, you know, an article in the paper about about bats and things like swallows and swifts and these aerial insectivores that are out eating mosquitoes, right? How much how much would we have to pay to manage mosquitoes if the birds weren't doing it for us? These sorts of things, right? So these are help us 
this is probably good for interfacing with politicians that often want to see dollar signs, uh, you know, out for, uh, for outcomes. You know, if we're, if we're going to do all this environmental conservation, what are we going to get out of it financially? And actually the answer is a lot. Um, but yeah, there, there, you know, we can appeal to people's ethical commitment to just being, you know, caring for other beings, whether they're humans or, or other things, ethical commitment to, you know, giving other people the opportunity to connect with, with beauty, to beauty, and benefiting mentally and physically from being able to to go for a walk in in the woods or or stroll along the Mississippi River or the Pacific Coast or wherever you happen to be. There are, I honestly believe there. I mean, there's a, a motivation that can that can connect with somebody from any worldview, um, but we still struggle, I think, with 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 letting those transform, uh, you know, our, our, our behaviors and our thoughts. We can, you know, there, I don't know of anybody that isn't willing to, or isn't capable of sort of putting that down in paper, but the more difficult part is, is having it, it manifest itself and in, in how we, how we live and, and breathe and, and work and, and, you know, the, the cars we buy and the food that we buy and the practices we, you know, we engage in around energy conservation and everything else under the sun. So uh, we've got work to do, but, but there are lots of, of great entry points for anyone you talk to. Mm. I know you have a particular love for woodpeckers and <laughs> especially woodpeckers as a keystone species. I don't know what that means. What is a keystone yeah. species? And tell us about woodpeckers and why you love them. Yes. So, gosh, I love them in part because I studied them, you know, and I think it's one of those things where you, you study something for four years as I did in graduate school. You can't help but just get emotionally tied to it. And so I, I do have a special affection for woodpeckers and they play an important role um, as keystone species, as you said. And that that concept uh, is is one that was assigned um, in the 1960s by somebody in the Pacific Coast that was studying um, starfish, actually. And he found that if you have a starfish in a tide pool, if anybody's ever gotten to walk through a tide pool and, on the in the coast, it's, you know, you see this menagerie of all these different colors and shapes of different things living in those tide pools, uh, urchins and mussels and et cetera, et cetera. And he found that when there were... Um, these starfish or sea stars, as we sometimes call them now, because they're not fish. So we're getting all, ner <laughs> all nerdy about our, our, our names, right? Precision, so, it matters. Yes, that's right. I know. I mean, the scientists and me is coming out. <laughs> so if the sea stars are in the tide pools. Then there was great diversity in the tide pools, right? And the, you know, 10 or, or 12 different species of invertebrates. And he did an experiment. He said, what if I take this one species out? Let's remove the sea stars. What happens? And when he removed the one species of sea star, the total diversity in that tide pool was cut in half, right? So somehow those sea stars had a disproportionate influence on biodiversity. So he said, hey, they're, they're keystones. This one species can determine whether this is a highly diverse environment or a you know, not so diverse environment. And so since then, we've studied this and found that, man, there are all, all kinds of different species that fill that similar niche. And with woodpeckers, they dig holes in trees, as we've probably seen at, for nest cavities, and they lay their eggs in there and raise their, their little baby woodpeckers in there and see their heads sticking out. And it's just delightful beyond imagination. 
Uh, but then after the woodpeckers are done with that cavity, depending on the species, some species will return and use that cavity year after year. Others will scrap it and they'll start over from scratch again the next year. And those cavities then are reused by a, a, a big list of other birds and, and mammals like bats and flying squirrels and uh, even things, you know, invertebrates and reptiles. And so all of those animals are dependent on woodpeckers for their nests. And so when you have woodpeckers in a forest, you've got all these other community of birds and whatnot that can live there and, and reproduce there and thrive. And without the woodpeckers, then all those other birds can't live there because they can't, they can't build their own nests. And so this is actually, humans have kind of filled this role. We don't really think about it, but we put up birdhouses, right? And our birdhouse is basically helping these these birds especially that are are historically were dependent on woodpeckers for their nesting habitat so hmm. where i live those are things like house wrens and chickadees and nuthatches uh bluebirds uh swallows tree swallows especially there's there's a surprising number also of ducks that nest in tree cavities a lot of people are aware that Wood ducks nest in tree cavities, but things like bufflehead and hooded mergansers and common mergansers are also cavity nesters, but golden eye. And so if you put it together, the, the presence of woodpeckers in a forest is, you know, they are the keystone species that provides nesting habitat for this huge suite of other things. So that's kind of a long explanation, but that's it. So I, mm. um, you know, when I was, uh, when I was teaching uh, in my Christian uh, schools. This is a, a great little devotional thinking about, you know, the verse in, in John where Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us. And in the same way, you know, woodpeckers preparing a place for their community. And so they are, uh, you know, maybe that's a, it's kind of a silly metaphor, but, but, but maybe an, an interesting way to think about how all of these forest communities are kind of interdependent on, on each other for, to thrive as a whole. I love it. I am using that for Sunday school. I'm taking that one. I'm writing that down. <laughs> it needs a little work. I think it needs a little massaging, but it's it's a good starting spot. Oh, it's wonderful. And and what's your particular favorite kind of woodpecker and why? Oh gosh. Um, so I grew up in the Western U.S. I grew, I'm from Idaho originally, and my research was in the Black Hills in South Dakota. And I think my my true favorite is a bird called the Lewis's woodpecker, which is kind of it's a wonderfully iridescent sort of pink and purple with uh black and white and they're just remarkable birds they're kind of rare though hard to find they really love these old burned forests so after a wildfire comes through uh if it kills all the trees 10 years later you'll it'll just be full of lewis's woodpeckers hmm. uh, but i don't get to see those in minnesota and <laughs> And a, a very similar species, uh, not similar looking, but similar in behavior is the red-headed woodpecker. And those we do have in Minnesota, although they're a bird that's not really thriving. They're one of those birds on these watch lists of, of birds in decline, but um, red-headed woodpecker are uh, in, in the Midwest are, are certainly a, a favorite of mine. I, I, I studied them from both my master's and my PhD. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, I have to say I'm uniquely fascinated uh, and, and sort of the, the stories ebb and flow in the media, but the, the stories of the I rebuild woodpecker uh, return. I know whenever those pop up, I everything just shuts down in my life, and I start reading like, oh goodness, they find one. I I hope someday that that comes true. I I'm I'm afraid I I got all excited twenty years ago when they thought they rediscovered them, and and I think 
was that 20 years ago? I can't remember the timeline for that. Maybe it was about 15 years ago. Um, so I, I don't know that we've ever come up with convincing evidence that they did, but hopefully someday somebody will 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 find a, a, a ivory build woodpecker somewhere in the southeast, and and I'll be one of those people uh, trekking down to see them. But I, I don't know mm. that's ever going to happen. Folks within the birding community are probably familiar with the ivory build woodpecker. Woodpecker probably is extinct, maybe not. There are news yeah. stories that come out every ten years yeah. or so about like we spotted one. But for people who aren't familiar, tell them a little bit about that woodpecker and why it's amazing. Yeah, and, and why people are still holding out hope for this. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Birds. No, that's a, that's a good question. I should give context to that to that story. So, ivory build woodpecker wa was the largest woodpecker in North America. Uh, they're the size of, you know, it's hard, it's hard to make a comparison, but bigger than a crow, probably, you know, close to the size of a raven, big, big giant bird. Bigger than a crow, a woodpecker bigger than a crow. That's, yes, that's, yeah, like, a, a that's like a dinosaur. A that's yeah, like I know. a little bit terrifying. Because our modern, you know, we've got pileated woodpeckers that are sort of close in size to a crow. Yeah. And so anyhow, big giant birds, and um, they have a lot of nicknames. And one of their nicknames was the Lord God bird. And apparently when you saw one, they were just so striking, you would say, Lord God, look at that bird. And so I have a couple books on my shelves, uh, you know, the search for the Lord God bird. Uh, um, but yeah, so they're great big giant woodpeckers and they were, they're probably extinct, as you said, sadly, mostly because of the loss of habitat, which is the the case for so many of our birds that are extinct or, or nearly so is because they just, they are uh, habitat specialists. And so they were dependent on old growth uh, swamp forests and they were found down in the Southeastern United States, Louisiana, Florida, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, that region. And so these um, sort of bottomland forests that would flood for parts of the year with these ancient monstrous trees that was just their happy place and unfortunately most of those forests were, were logged during the logging heyday in the United States and so they they don't like 20 year old trees 50 year old trees they like 200 year old trees and so you know we didn't this this was happening at a time when we didn't have a, a good sense for habitat needs when we weren't good at prioritizing wildlife you know if, if we could go back and and redo it we would say hey let's make sure that we set aside some tracts of land that we aren't going to log that are large enough to sustain these birds so that so that our need for resources from the earth which is not a bad thing to do to cut down trees but if we cut down so many of them that that species can't you know find habitat to survive i think that's a sign that that we're not really we're not balancing, right? So mm. I, I think it's farming is fine and logging is fine and harvesting water from the ground is fine. But when we do them to the point that that we're really causing, you know, long-term damage or preventing species from thriving, I, that's a, a clear sign that that we're, we don't have the right sideboards on our practices. Mm. And often those birds act as, you know, to, to use a, to use a metaphor, they act as the canary in the coal mine. And if the birds are suffering, then 10, 20, 30 years from now, it's the humans who will be suffering. And so they're this sign to us that we're yeah. taking too much, which is not just let's protect the bird that we may or may not care about. I mean, you and right. I care about it, but <laughs> politicians may just see the dollar signs yep. or, or, you know, people who are, who are trying to provide for their family through their farm and, and yep. that, you know, are living on the razor's edge. It's not, we don't want to demonize the, the. Mm -hmm people in, in business or logging, like Not you said. Yep. Um, so theological question, ivory build woodpeckers in the new creation, dodo birds in the new creation. <laughs> 
I, I, I hope so. I think so. I don't know I, if that's the case, maybe dinosaurs too. Uh, I love those questions, you know, speaking of engaging your imagination when thinking about, about theology, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I struggled with that for, for years, you know, and I've seen people that wrestle with, you know, are your pets going to heaven and these sorts of things. And I, I don't think anybody that, that says they know the, for sure, uh, I, I will uh, maybe roll my eyes a little bit, but I think the picture we get of new creation is that it, it's it's much like this one, except except with all without all the the misery and the suffering and, and the pain. And so I, I do expect it to be full of of a, a suite of wildlife and and you know thriving ecosystems along with with us continuing mm. to farm and log, but but do so in a way that that is uh, that's not causing such you know, tragic outcomes. And so I, that, that's part of what excites me about things like conservation ranching, which I mentioned earlier, things like shade grown coffee in the tropics. Mm. Uh, Say more about that. Tell me about shade grown yeah. coffee. I joined the the ABA last year, the American Birding Society. And yeah. the, the welcome gift is bird friendly coffee. And I thought, what, what does oh, that sure. mean? I did not know there was bird unfriendly <laughs> coffee. No, this is, yeah, this is, yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this, because this is another something I'm, I'm really excited about. When we see these, um, the, this is the vision, I think, of, of what farming could be, right? It's a people making a good living. It's providing resources for people. I'm, I'm a coffee drinker, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that, uh, but in a way that doesn't necessarily cause you know, severe ecosystem harm. So uh, a lot of coffee, uh, of course, grown in the tropics. It's not, we don't have coffee in Minnesota. Uh, and a lot of that coffee is grown by cutting down all the forests. And then you have what's called a monoculture. So just coffee, nothing else, right? So it's a good place to grow coffee perhaps, but not habitat for any form of wildlife. But coffee um, was discovered growing in the shade and coffee can grow in the shade. It, it's not going to grow in like the deep, deep shade, but it can grow just fine with trees growing over, uh, over top. You mm-hmm. can have healthy native trees in the tropics and then coffee growing in the understory. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, we see this as an opportunity uh, to, to both as research. And I know there's a, a great group of, of people, mostly from um, Cornell that have studied this and they say, yes, we've got a pretty healthy community of native birds in the tropics, migrant birds, you know, that are down there in the winter and also um, birds that are endemic to regions in the tropics living in these forests that are also functional, um, you know, fields for for producing uh, coffee and, and making a living for people. And so hmm. in order to to support those people that are wanting to to grow coffee in a way that supports a healthy environment, we have to make sure that the coffee we buy is, is shade grown. And so that's something I, I make a point to do. Um, you can mm. do the same thing. Actually, uh, chocolate is, is another uh, a happy story where, where chocolate grows great in the shade. And so a lot of, of chocolate can be grown really sustainably in the tropics. And so, you know, if you're buying chocolate, make sure it, it you know, you can re- read the label a little bit. Usually you can get some, some sense for how that is, is harvested, but you know, when, when there's opportunity here, uh, I, I saw, I have to, so I noticed that you grew up in Wisconsin. Is that right? I did. I love it. So I'm here close to Wisconsin and in the dairy state and uh, Audubon is, is talking with, uh, in addition with beef uh, ranchers, but also with dairy farmers and, mm-hmm. and 
people are doing something now I didn't even know was possible, which is grazing dairy cattle. And so you can Mm. raise dairy cattle, produce your, you know, your, all of your wonderful dairy products, uh, but in a way that's creating good habitat for birds because they're Mm. grazing pasture instead of, um, instead of bringing the food, you know, you're taking, taking the cattle to the food instead of bringing the food to the cattle. And so um, there's opportunity there to, to, to do agriculture in a way that's perfectly compatible with a thriving uh, ecosystem. And, and, and so I think, you know, as consumers, when we can, if we have the financial means, we should try and support those farmers that are, that are being such intentional stewards of, of creation. Uh, and then as with Audubon and other similar organizations, if we can lend a hand to make those practices better known and better understood, and we can use research to improve them, then, then we want to do the same thing. Our, ultimately, mm-hmm. our goal is to for those win-win opportunities where people can make a good living off of a, a product that we all need that is compatible with healthy um, communities of, of birds. Mm. And That's other things so... too, but especially birds. <laughs> but especially <laughs> birds. <laughs> especially birds. Yep. What are some things? So I don't work in agriculture. I have this little backyard here in California, mm-hmm. little front yard. And what are things that I can do? What are things listeners across the country can do? We have listeners in Germany and South Africa. What are things that we can do to help in the world of conservation that are doable, that are practical, but that will make a difference? Yes, that's a great question. So uh, you know, we we can do it with our consumer, uh, you know, dollars, but there are lots of ways, you know, if, if you have a yard, if you, if you have a house that you can, you know, think about how it's, it's managed there, there are ways to make your, your house a bird friendly environment. You can make it your own little important bird area. And so uh, one way you can do that is just by planting native plants. Na- native plants are going to have uh, more food for, for birds. And so um, there's been a, a really great um, sort of movement that has been created in part by uh, uh, an entomologist from the East Coast named Doug Tallamy. I think that's the, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and he wrote a book called Bring Nature Home. And he mm. studied uh, trees, you know, so he said, let's compare planting a, a native oak in your backyard versus bringing in a, a non-native tree, you know, so a, a tree that's not a bad tree, it's just not not native to that region. And he compared the availability of, of, of insects in those trees, right? And some people might say, oh, I don't really want more insects in my yard, but we're not necessarily <laughs> talking about mosquitoes, you know, and, and ticks. We're talking about just native caterpillars and leafhoppers. And those are the food that, that birds really are dependent on. So by planting native plants in our yard, we're making sure that, that, that birds are well-fed, right? You can put a bird feeder up Bird feeders are really mostly for for our enjoyment and our ability to connect with birds. I've got birds coming to a feeder right outside my window right now, but most of the birds coming to your feeder are not birds on the list of of endangered and and threatened and declining birds, right? And so um, to serve those, we want to plant native plants that are going to provide food, especially during migration, right? I don't have endangered birds nesting in my backyard during June, July, and August, but I do have rare and endangered birds flying through my yard during migration in, mm. in, uh, in May and in uh, September and October. And so especially during migration, those native plants are especially important. The other thing we can do is, um, is try and, um, you know, make modifications to our homes so that they're not a, a big risk to birds for, for collisions. And so mm-hmm. Audubon, 
you know, is, is, has a big campaign called the Lights Out campaign that uh, encourages people to turn off their lights during the spring and fall migration because those lights attract birds. Uh, and in, in, especially in urban environments with, with big skyscrapers and whatnot, you get these stories, occasionally awful stories of, of dozens or even hundreds of birds all striking a building and, and having these mass mortality events, but we all get one bird at a time hitting our, our window. So that happens sometimes through light, but also just from having windows that have, you know, most of us want to have a beautiful yard full of trees and, and flowers and whatnot, but those trees and flowers reflect in the window and to the bird, it just looks like more trees and flowers. So they try and fly into it. And, and that's usually uh, causes an injury or it kills the birds. And so, mm. um, you know, we can, we can uh, prevent that in a number of ways. If you have the, the means or if you're going through, a, you know, if you're replacing your windows, put, um, put windows up that have uh, the little fritted, fritted glass is what it's called, or just little dots, little dots that are spaced about two or three inches apart. And that helps the birds see that as a window and not mm-hmm. as a reflection of a, of a natural space that they can fly through. But even if you aren't going through that expensive process for replacing windows, you can put um, treatments on windows or you can even hang little strings um, in front of the windows just to help birds see that as not a stru- something that they can fly through. And so, um, you know, I, there are fantastic links. Audubon's got all kinds of amazing resources to help people think through all the different ways that they can uh, deal with their windows because most people aren't going to just go through and replace their windows to do this, but putting on window coatings or hanging something in front of your window that isn't going to really affect your view can can really have a positive impact on, pre- on preventing window collisions. So, you know, the, there are a lot of things out there that kill birds. And one of our challenges is deciding like, well, you know, is it really killing enough birds to make a difference? And unfortunately, mm-hmm. collisions with human structures like buildings really kills millions and millions of birds every year in North America to, you know, it's really having population level effects. So mm-hmm. those those, um, those uh, you know, providing, planting native plants so they have good food when they come to your yard and preventing your, your, your windows and your, your, your building from being a, a collision concern can, can make sure that the birds that come to your neighborhood uh, are thriving while they're there. Mm. I will link to those those Audubon resources in the mm-hmm. show notes as well, so people can just click on over. I the more I learn about migration, the more tenderness I feel toward these birds. It is, from what I understand, the most arduous event of their lifetimes, and for most of them, it's twice a year, and yep. they've got to store up food. And you know, you think of the the house finch in my backyard never crashes into our window because the house <laughs> finch just hangs out in my back; it's not going anywhere. It but, knows its way; it's around. Right, right. Yeah. That rare warbler that's just flown. 300 miles and is exhausted is not you know at its best paying attention you know it's trying not to get eaten it needs to find food it's just to think about what those birds go through and the small things we can do to make make their journey a little bit gentler and a little bit easier um is it's inspiring it It gives me it gives me hope it is it is yeah i think i mean migration is one of those things i I think that I think of the most when I think of how birds inspire hope that birds go through this amazing, arduous, you know, transcontinental flights and new environments and dodging predators. uh, And yet 
they do it year after year and some of them do it for for decades you know i was just on a meeting of a couple of weeks ago talking with someone about common terns which are uh, um you know kind of these gull like birds we've got them nesting up in in northern minnesota a couple of colonies and these terns that are that are 10 20 years old so they're they're making these big long flights over and over and over again and that persistent um that persistence and returning back every year and trying to nest even when they're not very successful at nesting because <laughs> you know because we've got competition from all these other birds and the failing habitat conditions and uh you know last year we had floods in minnesota and northern minnesota flooded out all these colonies it was really disheartening to hear about mm -hmm. and yet those birds will come back next year and try again Right, they are, they are dogged and persistent, and it, it, overcoming all the obstacles in their way. And goodness, if they can do it, you know, we can. <laughs> if we put in half the effort, I think we can, we can make similar progress. I have to bite my tongue on hikes with my children sometimes when it's like we're going two miles and the amount of like, oh, it's so long, it's so far, I'm hot, my shoes hurt. And I want to point out, you know, every hummingbird in the brush that I'm like, do you know that hummingbird was not here a month ago and it flew 600 miles. They don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll, maybe they'll find that more compelling as they age, but I, I can relate to that. So Dale, tell me about your disciple science project, because this, this is one of my passions is this interplay between faith and science. And you have this wonderful series of videos. What inspired it? What are your goals? And yeah. what's next for disciple science? Yeah, thank you for asking. This is kind of a, a passion project of mine. Um, a lot of it came from uh, two things. One, one is my own life, growing up in a Christian environment. Uh, my faith was just so, so important to me, most important thing to me in, in my youth uh, and in high school. And in college, I I wrestled a little bit, if I'm honest, about mm. how to put those things together. Um, I didn't have a good mentor that, that said, hey, let me, let me talk to you about how, how faith and science fit together. I, I, I kind of did it on my own. And because I did it on my own, I failed at it, uh, at least in the first try around. Uh, and in my late 20s, early 30s, I kind of had a, 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 a realization that my faith that was so important to me when I was young uh, no longer was. And my career as a biologist was doing fine, but uh, I, I became aware that I wanted my faith back. You know, I, 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 it really wasn't, wasn't active anymore. Uh, but I also knew that I, I needed to do some work in this area. And so mm. I, at, at that point, you know, fresh off my PhD and sort of going through an early midlife crisis, trying to figure out how to, how to reconcile my faith, which I wanted back with my, with my biology career. I, I, I did a bunch of reading basically, cause I didn't have a, a mentor and I didn't know anyone to talk to about it. Cause I didn't really have a, a pastor at the time because I hadn't been regularly attending church. And so I started pouring through books because I, that's kind of how I solve problems as an academic, that's academically what PhD inclined person. <laughs> I can read my way out of this. I know I yeah, can. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I found, what I found was, was beautiful models of how faith and science do work together. They just hadn't been presented to me. Um, so, you know, I kind of made peace with this myself. And then I went and taught at a Christian university for 11 years, a, a very conservative one. 
and I saw my students struggling with these same problems and same questions. And so I, I wanted to be the mentor that I didn't have. And so I, I, I got to do that as I taught biology and environmental science and conservation biology. But I also thought, you know, this is, this is great. I'm glad I can do this with these students. This is a small little section. And I know there are people out there pouring through the internet, typing, you know, their own questions in. The internet wasn't around when I was that age, and, or at least not, not the way it is now. And if I have to admit, I was really taken by the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that. And I thought that they did an amazing job of creating resources that um, they just did, a, you know, help people make sense out of this complex thing, the Bible. And I thought, well, maybe it's something similar that that dealt with the intersection, intersection of, of, of faith and science. I, I, I really have a, you know, a, a, this, this, um, it's compulsion now to, to talk to people about this because I, I see people struggle with it. Um, and I think it's a missing component of our faith, not just, you know, preventing problems, but actually enhancing our faith by connecting with God th through nature. And I, this is uh, my belief, and I know not everybody is on board, but that, you know, disciples of, of Jesus, disciple science, this sort of whatever moniker that I came up with is that we, we shouldn't be trying to um, come up with new answers to scientific questions. I, I don't think science to a Christian is necessarily that different to, from science to a secular person because science just doesn't have the ability to, to talk about purpose and, and meaning and, um, you know, or, or tell us anything about what the story of Jesus means, et cetera, et cetera. So, it, you know, I think science is pretty similar, but what, what science can do is, that, that faith can is is um, is, is give meaning to the to the the physical world that that we are um, that we are so fascinated and enamored with and I um, it's kind of interesting sorry I'm kind of rambling here but my prior to teaching at a Christian university I, I taught uh, at a in a secular graduate school uh, uh, you know sort of on conservation biology and, and environmental sciences and in, in the Tetons and uh, in uh, Grand Teton National Park in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for people that are familiar with that area. And and what I found is that many of the people that are most um, connected to the natural world and most inspired to care for it, they thought that Christianity had nothing to offer them, right? They, they think Christianity is, you know, thinks that the, the world is evil and we're just all want to go to heaven. Christianity is, you know, in part because of complexities in politics and whatnot is is actively working against environmental conservation and that just broke my heart to to see that that view uh, being so prominent um in in a, in a secular audience and so i wanted to create resources videos a little podcast a little blog here and there um but hopefully create videos that help people see that that um, christianity and science do fit together that christians um, can and, and should be deeply connected with God through nature and that our, our love for seeing birds and for going on hikes and our desire for, you know, homes and beautiful places and vacations and beautiful places. That's a, that's a deeply religious, uh, uh, desire. I, I, I think that our, uh, the, what, what scientists call human biophilia, right. Which is just this, unusual human pattern to be fascinated by the natural world it has has ties to to 
to Christian theology, right? That, that mm. God is revealed through all he has created and that the, the, you know, the skies proclaim the work of his hands and, and the stars proclaim, you know, all that he has done. And so um, my hope was that I could help people find resources that would, would point them in that direction, prevent Christians from, from struggling with their faith and helping maybe people that don't have a Christian faith or, or don't have a faith of any kind to see that Christianity is, is deeply interested in, uh, in, in, in the, the, the care for, for nature and creation and, um, and in uh, what, why we find things beautiful. Mm. I love that. These videos, friends, I will link to the videos in the show notes, but they are they are delightful. They are funny and they are gentle and they are smart and they they really do help answer some questions, but not in a gotcha told you so sort of way. Just in a this is how these things are connected and fit together and how they yeah. can influence and boost one another. And I love what you said about science can teach us things and and we don't need to question. I mean, science is all about questions, but we can say, okay, science has discovered this. This is fascinating. We don't need to reinterpret that. But what what faith can teach us is is why and what does this mean and how does yeah. this influence my soul? One of my favorite things about this podcast is I'm talking to to scientists like you, but I'm also talking to poets and I'm talking to artists and yeah. they notice different things about birds because they they love them in a different way and they experience them in a different way and those things can work together. They don't have to be oh, threats to one another. It's so good, yeah. I remember hearing the story once of a Sunday school class where the teacher was describing something that was small and brown and furry and had a big bushy tail and climbed trees. And she said, what do you think it is? And a child raised their hand and said, well, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus because it's Sunday school, but it really sounds like <laughs> it really sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> oh, that's great. And if all truth is God's truth, then the natural world has so much to teach us that we lose when we're just bulldozing over it or not even noticing it. That has been so convicting to me. I've only been <sighs> a birder for a few yeah. years and yep. I keep thinking, what else haven't I been noticing? What else yep. have I been tuning out the blessings of God, the beauty of creation that's literally right outside my door, but yeah. I'm, I'm too, you know, stressed yeah. out or I'm not paying attention. And science has so much to teach us in the church yes. and so much to teach us as Christians. It does. And I think it, it's good for us to see that, that God, um, God works through, through processes that, that we can understand. Right. Cause I think too often we sort of, we leave God's action to to the miraculous and the mysterious and then what science can explain is well you know maybe god's involved in creation here but he didn't, he didn't he's not responsible for that but if we can if we can sort of blend those together a little bit and say god is actively involved in the photosynthesis and the bird migration and everything else you know astrophysics whatever it is of interest to you it helps us to see that, that god wants to if god wants to act through those parts of creation maybe he wants to act through me too, right? He, he wants to work through humans to accomplish his purposes. We're not sitting around waiting for him to miraculously intervene to, to feed the people. Let's go out and do it ourselves. Um, mm. And, and I, I, so I think that it, it really has applications that go far, far beyond just whether people are struggling with the age of the earth and evolution or, or whatever, you know, uh, questions are, are, are causing our, our, our brains to, to hurt on a given day. So 
and not that God can't do miracles, God can and God does, but it yeah. seems to me from, from my study and my you know theological background that God most often chooses to work within the natural laws that God himself has set up and created. Exactly, exactly. That this world is a good world and that yep. means gravity is good and that means the theory of relativity is good and that means you know God works within these processes because they themselves are holy and created by God. Yes, yeah, amen. Yep, yeah, creation reveals God. And creation's also groaning, right? Uh, waiting for oh. us to to get our act together and and to play a more active role and in, in in helping it to thrive. So, spoken like someone at, in the middle of a Minnesota winter. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that's fair. I, I have to admit, I I love I love uh, winter weather. So I would struggle to live in a climate that didn't have a, a good winter. But um, there are times when it can test test my resolve. <laughs> When we moved out here eight years ago, I'm a Wisconsin girl. I grew up playing ice hockey, you know, and, and oh, we were great. interviewing at this church and I was talking to the senior pastor who is Canadian. And oh. I said, you know, how are you doing in Southern California? Are you okay? You know, do you miss the snow? And he said, Courtney, you can visit the snow. Like, you don't... <laughs> That's that how I feel true. about Florida. See, I, I, I enjoy my trips to Florida and some great bird watching down there and the, and the beach, but boy, I would have a hard time living there. But That's okay. Then it's time to go home. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it takes it takes all kinds, and I yes. miss those I miss those Midwestern birds very much. So I got to get back it. there sometime soon. Well, Dale, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to to tell our listeners as we close about your work with the Audubon, your work with Disciple Science? No, no, I think that's probably that's a good start. At least you know um, I. Uh, I, I love engaging with with people on these topics. I'm, I'm deeply passionate about all, all the above, um, and so you know, if anybody has questions and wants to reach out, uh, I'm I'm not always super on top of my personal email, but I, I will respond eventually. And so, um, I, I'm just so grateful for, to you for taking this on, both for having me on, but also for uh, creating this space to to talk about the intersection of. Of, uh, of hope and faith and, and birds and beauty. And I, it's just such a, um, it's, it's needed. It's good for us. Uh, and, and I think it will, will serve us all well. So I hope you, I, I hope people find these conversations of great value. I, I know I have. Mm, thank you so much, Dale. That means, that means the world. And to our listeners, I will link to all Dale's resources in the show notes. And I really encourage you, if you are not in touch with your local Audubon chapter, that is a wonderful <laughs> way to get into birding locally. Our local chapter is the Sea and Sage Audubon. They have a house, they have a gift store, they have binoculars they'll loan out to you. And that's common across the country. They have bird banding programs and backyard bird counts and yeah. all sorts of good stuff. So check it out. It is often free. They do lectures. I just, I cannot, I am a, I'm an evangelist for several things. One is Jesus. <laughs> the other is the Audubon Society. There's also a great local donut store that I'm I'm kind of an evangelist for, but I can, t- I can talk about that another time. Thank you so much, Dale, for the gift of your time. It has been such a delight to meet you and, and learn from you today. Likewise. Thanks for having me on. It's been a joy. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put your soul.
Yes, it does.